0: Well, welcome to the Missio podcast, everyone. My name is Jared King, and today we are discussing one of my favorite books of the Bible, which is the letter to the Philippians. It's just a short little letter, four chapters long, written by Paul to the churches that he helped start in the city of Philippi. You know, this letter written by Paul to the Philippian churches begins in the way that many friendship letters would have been written at this time. And so I think it's important for us to dig in a little bit of the context and what friendship letters were about and some of the context of Philippi before we dig into the contents of the letter, because it's going to help us better understand what Paul was talking about. And so letter writing was one of the only ways to communicate with people long distance. They didn't have things like telephone or email in the first century. And, and so often then letters were how people communicated with, with friends and family. And so the letters were a little bit longer than maybe ours would be because it would take weeks and weeks for them to be delivered. And so you wanted to say the things that you had to say. You didn't want to just send a letter that said something like, hey, do you guys want chicken for dinner? You know, check yes or no kind of thing. These tended to be longer and they would cover a wide range of topics. And so Paul was prolific in writing letters to the churches that he helped start around uh, Greece and Rome. You know, but not unlike today, many letters, again, they were written between two friends or two groups of friends. And friendships were important in the ancient world and they were typically classified into three general types of friendships and so the first type of friendship was between two people or groups of people who experienced true friendship based on virtuous living whose relationship was then based on mutual goodwill and loyalty which included trust and the second kind of friendship was based on mutual likes and interests. And it was hobby based. And you guys understand those, you know, friendships that were, are based on working out or game nights or movies or whatever is agreeable to us. And then the last kind of friendship was based on need. And this was a completely utilitarian type of friendship that was based solely on getting something of need from a person. And so Paul, this letter that he writes to the Philippian churches takes on many of the characteristics of that first type of friendship, that that typical, you know, friendship that was based on virtuous living, where relationship was based on mutual goodwill and loyalty. And so it's a little bit important to kind of talk about, so what actually characterized that friendship of goodwill and loyalty? And so there were really three kind of core ideals that emerged that were thought to relate to all of those real and genuine friendships. And the first ideal was virtue. And so especially the idea of fidelity or loyalty, which meant that there was a sense of faithfulness to the relationship. And so Paul was faithful to stay in touch, to be a spiritual leader, to offer advice and love and care, while the Philippians, the churches there, were faithful to then respond, to listen, to heed Paul's words, to send him money occasionally. But that first ideal in a friendship that was based on virtuous living was that the people involved in that friendship had a sense of loyalty and fidelity toward one another. The second ideal was affection in the form of goodwill toward the other for his or her own sake. And so Paul would genuinely ask in his letters, and especially in the letter to the Philippians, How are you doing? And he was longing to actually know their condition, their spiritual condition, their physical and mental and emotional condition. Because a real friendship longed to make the other person's life better in whatever way was possible, which leads then to the next ideal, which was mutual giving and receiving of benefits. And oftentimes this came through goods and services. And so at this time, you know, a person's greatest asset was their skill or their talent. And so in real friendships, The skills and talents that people had would be leveraged for the good of the other person in that friendship. And friendships honestly could not be understood apart from this idea of benefits. It was just one of the natural byproducts of what a real friendship was. But just like today, those benefits could be abused at times, which would undermine then that sense of mutuality and trust. But see, friendship, real friendship, required reciprocity. And so there was also this sense of obligation and and expressions of gratitude. And this is really fun because this is what you see, this kind of virtuous friendship you see all throughout Paul's letters to the Philippians. The entire letter was predicated on his and their mutual goodwill toward one another. And you get this sense that that was the bottom line of the entire letter, a desire to see the other person's goodwill toward God and in the world increase that Paul and the Philippians were partners. They were participating in the kingdom together, not as individuals that were moving in different directions, but rather as co-laborers who were certainly in different places, perhaps in different places spiritually even, but they were moving in the same direction together. And so you begin to see in this letter to the Philippians, this very traditional friendship style letter. And see, Paul will, will work hard to approach the conversation from that perspective of mutual benefit and goodwill. And that's important for us to kind of understand that Paul isn't writing this letter out of a sense of superiority. He's not writing it out of a sense that he is something better than the Philippian churches, but that they have this sense of friendship, this virtuous friendship. But there was a second characteristic of traditional letter writing in ancient times that centered around the idea of moral exhortations. And to exhort simply means to strongly encourage or to urge someone to do something. And so sometimes people would write letters containing commendations on how the receiver of the letter could either correct or continue to grow in their moral capabilities so a father can write a letter to his son saying, look, I urge you to care for your siblings. It is your moral capability and responsibility. A friend could write a letter urging another friend to come to their aid because there was a sense of moral capability that they had. But these moral exhortations were almost always done kind of through two different means. The first was from a superior to an inferior or a subordinate. And so a king would write, his subjects, telling them to do better at paying taxes or, you know, whatever kings told their subjects to do. And so that would then be a superior to an inferior or, or, or these, or that's the first one, but these also these moral exhortation letters were done on the basis of a friendship of virtue or virtue for mutual benefit. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians functions as a sort of exhortation letter of friendship. And so in other words, Paul will begin the letter calling attention to the friendship between himself and the believers in Philippi. And then after fully establishing the friendship connection, he will then begin to exhort and encourage people to continue in the gospel of Jesus. You know, one of the things that it seems that Paul is is writing, one of the main reasons for writing this letter was to encourage the Christians to stand firm in their faith together. And so chapter 1 describes this opposition and suffering that the churches were facing. And so on the basis of friendship, Paul is then urging them to remain faithful to Jesus. It seems like a pretty standard and like a good thing to write to a church, doesn't it? But I think it's important for us to take a step back and think, well, what was that suffering and opposition that the churches were experiencing in Philippi? It's obvious that they were experiencing some some kind of opposition. They were experiencing some kind of suffering. Paul mentions it in chapter one, but what was that? And to really understand this, we have to dig just a little bit deeper into the context of the city of Philippi. And so I know this is, you know, the kind of stuff that all you history buffs really, really love. So, so buckle up because this is kind of the historical, historical analysis piece of this, this podcast. And so the city of Philippi sat on the far eastern edge of Greece and was just a very, very important city in the Roman Empire. It's the strategic location of Philippi along the Via Ignatia, which was just simply the name of the main road system that was connecting Rome to the eastern provinces of the empire. And so Rome, you know, was the city, they they were the empire of roads. They built roads and structures everywhere. And so there were these main roads going from Rome to the eastern provinces of the empire. And in the middle sat Philippi which made it a hub for all sorts of things like trade and business and military and so much more. It was one of the main cities of the gold-producing region of Macedonia, which made it quite wealthy and was given special rights and privileges by the Roman rulers that were honestly normally reserved only for Italian cities. And so the city would have been filled with all sorts of ex-Roman military army soldiers and their families, after they were done with their, their terms, they would be given land and they would be given places in, in, in Philippi. And so there was, there was this very high pro-empire culture that permeated through the city of Philippi. I mean, again, that the entire city owed its existence as a Roman colony to the Roman emperor. And therefore, this high empire-centric mentality really flourished in this city. And so it's in this kind of context that Paul then travels to Philippi and he begins starting these churches. And so again, the letter hints and outright talks about the opposition and suffering that the churches are experiencing. It says it in in chapter 1. And so Paul, in, in throughout this letter, will consistently call Jesus, he will call Jesus Lord and Savior. And those are really two very, very important terms that Paul is using specifically within the context of the city of Philippi, which would have been met with a great deal of resistance in the city since the Roman emperor, Caesar, had come to be known as the Lord and Savior. And so, especially in the eastern provinces of the empire, where where Philippi was situated, the idea of the emperor being lord and savior created this sort of emperor cult that would have culminated in basically every public arena, the emperor then being lifted to the place of ultimate praise and worship and glory and essentially deification. And so think about this. This is the context of which Paul is going and starting this church. And Paul is noticing that there is this deep sense of of emperor worship. There is this emperor cult. There is this pro-empire position and culture in the city. And he's starting this church. And the church is calling Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because obviously, the Christians who saw Jesus as the only one worthy of praise and worship and the true Lord Lord and Savior would then have begun to disassociate themselves with the local beliefs regarding the emperor. And that beginning to distance themselves would have caused then opposition to begin to arise toward the Christians, and it heightened. And that relationship between the church and the culture and the people in Philippi would have begun to fall apart. Because there was a sense that that Christians weren't supposed to worship Caesar. They weren't supposed to be pro-empire in that sense. They were supposed to be Jesus worshipers. They were supposed to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so there was perhaps this sense that Paul was getting that some of the Christians were beginning to gravitate back towards this idea of Caesar as also Lord and Savior. As the empire as also Lord and Savior. Being pro-empire. And so Paul is saying, no, stand firm in Jesus. And this would obviously have caused the Christians who's, uh, oh, yeah. And so I, I realize this is a lot of background information. From friendship letters to the context of the city of Philippi to emperor cults and more. And so why is all that important? Why do we give that background? Remember, we read the Bible from a 21st century American Christian lens which is honestly the kind of lens that we wear since we are 21st century American Christians. However, the Bible was written 2000 years ago to people and cultures that were vastly different from our own. And one of the greatest challenges that we have and we face in reading scripture is to do the hard work of understanding why these people wrote to the people that they wrote to, the context and the situations that they were in and that they were dealing with. Because if we are simply content to read it from our own cultural lens, we will end up doing several things. We'll miss huge pieces of God and begin to see God in ways that perhaps he never wanted us to see. But then we'll also begin to make some of the same mistakes that the Christians were making when Paul is saying, no, this is not what we're, this is not what we're supposed to be about. And so the backdrop of Philippians is incredibly important in understanding what is going on in this amazing little letter which again, we want to uncover all of those things as we go along. And so in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul begins in that very friendship-oriented way. Just like a lot of friendship letters would have been started, Paul starts it in the same way, saying things like he thanks God for them every time he thinks about them. He tells them that they are in his heart and that they are partners in the gospel. He says, you share. We are sharing in God's grace Together, which is true friendship, this desire for, for mutual benefit and goodwill that we, we discussed earlier. He then mentions how he is doing as a person, right? Because in friendship letters, you always let people know how you are doing, which is what they were honestly thinking about, right? They were wondering, how is Paul doing? And so he lets them know here's a piece of information about how I'm doing. And so he tells them what's happening while he's in prison and how people are coming to faith in Jesus, even while he's in prison. And so this whole first chapter is establishing that friendship connection that they have together as a way to help transition them then into a couple of chapters of exhortation on urging them to remain faithful and to stand firm in Jesus. Because again, remember, There was this permeating, empirical, pro-empire posture within the city of Philippi that potentially the Christians were beginning to gravitate towards. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's Jesus. Stand firm in Jesus. And so I love chapter two, how Paul begins chapter two, because he begins with the centrality of Jesus and Jesus as the ultimate example. And so this first section of chapter two is one of the most important that Paul writes in all of his writings about Jesus. This is the foundation for everything else that Paul believes about Jesus and our way of emulating the truth of Jesus. And so these first 11 verses of Philippians chapter two are so important. It is the core of the gospel and our response to it. And the thing that you see in this the, the thing that you see, I'm just going to read the first, uh, well, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And see, in this you see that Jesus was not a self-grasping, selfish being, hoarding his power and position at the right hand of God for himself, but rather one whose love for others found its perfect expression in pouring himself out and taking on the role of a slave in humbling himself to the point of death on behalf of those that he loves. See, it's no wonder that Paul cannot accept triumphalism. Which triumphalism is the excess exalting of one's successes or achievements. And Paul will have nothing to do with triumphalism in any of its forms. And we're going to see him do the exact opposite of this in chapter 3 in just a minute. But he can't stand that posture of triumphalism because Jesus himself denied himself being exalted. He denied his exalted place and came lower than humanity to lift humanity humanity up. You know, I think that Paul does believe that eventually there is vindication for the follower of Jesus, but the vindication happens at the end of times, not in the present time. See, to Paul, discipleship in the present calls for servanthood, self-sacrifice for the sake of others, to lift others up, not to seek self-exaltation, but rather humility for the sake of others. The the, the language in those first 11 verses uh, of chapter 2 of Jesus humbling himself, making himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, dying. All of those things have a counter result for the people that he came to. See, the question can be asked, why does he do all these things? Why make himself lower? Why go to the cross? Why give up his position of power? It's so that he can lift humanity up on his shoulders to experience the goodness of life with God that he enjoys. And see, if that is not a form of justice, then I do not know what is. Jesus pursued justice for humanity by giving up his power and position to raise people up. The very example of Jesus was to make himself lower than people who did not deserve anything so that they would experience something different because of that self-sacrifice. See, Paul says that Jesus saw the condition of humanity and he knew the only solution was to go to us, was to come to humanity, to make himself lower than us so that we could finally be in a place to meet with God in some of these first 11 verses of chapter 2, Paul settles deeply the truth of Jesus. That he has done the one thing that we as his followers have for centuries fought to not have to do ourselves. Which is to willingly give up some of our position and power to lift others up. Why? Because we we love being comfortable. We love it. We value comfort almost more than we do, say, loving others. And I think the Philippian Christians may have struggled with this as well. And Paul is saying, look, we've got to go back to the example of Jesus. Let's start looking at the example of Jesus because we can all agree that we are all moving toward looking more like Jesus. And if that is honestly the case, then we have to see what he did and we have to do our best to adopt that posture of living. So he starts by laying the foundation saying, this is what Jesus was. This is who he was. He gave up everything, everything, to lift humanity up. Paul then transitions away from Jesus as the example to using his own life as an example of what it looks like to live into the example of Christ. But again, he doesn't use his own story to, to elevate himself in any way, but actually to help establish the exact opposite of an elevated status. He says, "Look, here are all the reasons that in any other circumstance would make me a more religiously superior person than you or basically anyone else." He then goes on to describe in the first few verses of chapter 3 a bunch of things like I am the from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm etc., etc., etc. Do you remember from last week's podcast on Galatians that there was this growing trend among the Jewish Christians to use their status as Jews as a way to make themselves greater than the Gentile Christians? However, Paul says, if you want to use that as a basis, then I have the best argument for a historical religious superiority. And so here it is. And then he lists those things in in chapter three, verses four through six. Uh, Okay, you guys all know that I do CrossFit. You know that I love it. And and I was a coach for a little while and one of the funniest things to watch as a coach was when a new person would come in and, and it was obvious that this new person has a history of, had a history of working out. They probably did a lot of bro lifting in college, which if you don't know what bro lifting, and you can't say bro lifting without saying bro lifting. But it's the kind where you get that curl bar and you put a bunch of weights on it and then you stand in front of that mirror sideways, kind of watching yourself curl and getting that massive bicep. And usually bro lifting doesn't have that full range of motion that we like to see in CrossFit. And it certainly doesn't incorporate things like cardio or aerobic conditioning in the workouts at all, because it's honestly just about looking at yourself in the mirror, And so when I was coaching, we would periodically have these guys who would come in who had a history of working out, but no experience doing CrossFit. And always with new people, it was my job to ask, you know, their level of experience, their history of injury and any specific goals that they were wanting to achieve. And so when I would do that, inevitably, we would get people who wanted to make sure that we knew that they were athletes. They had worked out in gym for years and they had a good, you know, they could bench press 250 pounds or whatever it was. And so I would simply ask them things like, okay, it's great, but can you do a pull-up? <laughs> can you do a pull-up? <sighs> Have you ever used an assault bike? What's your Fran time? Which Fran is just a short but challenging benchmark workout in CrossFit that involves thrusters and pull-ups, which seems easy, but is incredibly hard. And usually I wouldn't get a straight answer when I asked those things, but rather an answer that included all their previous working out experiences mixed with ums and uhs. And inevitably, when we would start the CrossFit workout, which tends to be a lot more intense than your standard bro-lifting sesh, they would struggle massively. And a lot of times they would finish last in workouts and they would wonder why, why did that happen? But it's because working out in the past doesn't necessarily help you if you've never done CrossFit and you haven't incorporated some of the movements or cardio into the workouts that CrossFit does every single day. And I always wanted to tell those guys, look, I worked out all of my life before CrossFit. I was in the gym every single day growing up in high school and college, but it didn't prepare me very well for the intensity of CrossFit. And see, in part, I think this is some of what the, what the Jews were, were doing They were telling the Gentile Christians, look, I have been a follower of God all of my life. I've kept the law. I've done all the the religious rituals. I've kept the dietary standards. And Paul is looking at them and going, yeah, and? Those are fantastic things, but we aren't talking about those things. We're talking about life with Jesus. And then he says, look, if you want to start measuring our history of success in religious fervor, I have you beat every time. And then he very firmly says, but look, none of my past makes me any more religiously significant than anyone with a past that is completely opposite of mine because we're talking about life with Jesus, not religious Judaism. All of those old accolades are meaningless. They don't give you a leg up or a higher position in the kingdom because with Jesus, it all comes down to him and his work and what he has done and is doing, not what we have done or will do. And I love this part of what Paul says. Because after he says, look, none of your religious history matters, he follows it up by saying, so what matters is your humility. Your humility and your willingness to trust in the work of Jesus in yourself and in the people around you. It's humility. Man, how often... Do we find ourselves and the people around us missing the absolute spiritual connection to Jesus through a sense of humility? Isn't this exactly what he was talking about in chapter 2? That Jesus himself lived into a deep sense of humility and a willingness to lower yourself to the, to the lowest place for the sake of others. He says, Jesus himself, sitting at the right hand of God, possessing the very character and power of God, living in the goodness of heaven and glory and beauty, gave it up, humbled himself for the good of others. And this is what Paul is trying to show the Philippian churches that that he has tried to live into as well. See, Paul had a status as a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, a highly respected and feared ruler in the religious world but those don't matter because it's not through your power or the obtaining of more power and position that will help bring the nearness of God to people's lives. It's through the giving up of power and position, lifting the people around you up so that they have easier access to and nearness to Jesus. I am honestly stunned that so often we miss this point from Paul's letter. We miss this call to humility, to give up power and position for the good of others. We miss the humility that Jesus lived and that Paul called us to mimic. To me, it seems painfully clear from this letter but also from countless other places in scripture. And yet so often in churches, we will do whatever it takes to become the people in positions of power, and we will fight for that position and power above all else to remain. And see, we start getting angry and we start getting defensive when it feels like the power begins to slip away from us. I was recently reading an article that was saying that Christianity is growing and has always grown in places where the governmental systems in place are actually more directly opposed to Christianity. That the more lenient things are towards Christianity in a country, then the faster it actually declines. You know, I think there is a truth about our calling as Jesus people that says, look, life with Jesus isn't meant to be comfortable all the time. It isn't meant to make us prosperous or to propel us into positions of power and influence. If Jesus willingly gave all of those things up for our sake, then perhaps the calling of the church is not to seek power and position, but rather to humbly enter into the reality of people's lives and do our best to lift them up so that they can have an experience of God, a moment with Jesus that we believe will transform them and what we have perhaps unintentionally done in the american christian culture is every single week on sundays we try to one up ourselves in our worship to give people a bigger, better, more high emotional feeling of god's presence. and so we have unintentionally trained people that the that to experience god, you have to have the emotional spiritual highs every single week and those spiritual highs have to get bigger and bigger. And better in order to try and keep people's attention in church. But see, then when life hits us in the face, what tends to happen is that we feel like we are missing something. Like we did something wrong it no longer feels the same way as it once did because the way we were trained to experience God was only in the super produced moments on Sunday morning that drew us to tears and caused us to fall to our knees. And when those things are gone, we become completely disoriented, questioning our faith and questioning Jesus's faith in us. And no, those are not necessarily bad things. To have high spiritual moments can be a wonderful experience and a great tool to develop people. But what has been detrimental is that we left the experience of God there. And we forgot to help people know how to experience God in every other moment of life, including the ones that are really awful. Because we assume that if we're feeling bad, if things are not going the way that we expect or want, then surely God isn't there the way that he used to be. But to me, that way of experiencing God is based fully on moments of position and power not on humility and lifting others up. It's the position that we deserve a bigger and better experience of God every day. And it's a power thing in the sense that if you don't have the ability or capacity to put on a light show or have the best worship band or whatever it may be, then your, then your people will never fully experience the full presence of God. And so I want you to hear this next part so clearly. Because what Paul will say in Philippians 3.10 will flip that perspective of an experience of God on its head when he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, he is saying to know Jesus To have an experience of Jesus is first and foremost about living deeply and fully into the sacrificial servant nature, lifting others up, seeking justice life of Jesus. You know, the reason there is so much pushback in the Christian world to social justice or racial justice is because it requires us to give something up to sacrifice a bit of ourselves, our power, our position for the good of others, to lift them up. And as churches, we have so often reversed those things and constantly trained people that church and experiencing Jesus is about our position and power and therefore we must hang on to it. We cannot lose it in our culture, in our world. And if that is how we have taught people, then it is obviously going to be quite scary and challenging when people hear no, that is not the way. The more Christ-like way begins with a sacrifice and giving up of things, of all of those things for the good of those around you, especially the people that you don't necessarily agree with. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. This is what he's saying Jesus did in this letter to the Philippians. Do you think that Jesus came to earth only for the people who agreed with him? No, of course not. Jesus humbled himself lower than even the people who wanted nothing to do with him. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. So that then people could be lifted up and have an experience of God. Okay, I I know that was a lot. It was, it was a lot. And see, I think Paul also knew that this section would make people, even the Philippians, who he had such an affection and care for, that they would honestly struggle with this. Like, geez, thanks, Paul. As if I didn't feel bad enough, now I see that I'm not living this life like Jesus modeled and you modeled. I really suck at this. But I want you to look at what Paul says in the very next verses, in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. It says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, I have to admit, this is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I actually have it tattooed on my back. But I love this because he just said all this stuff about giving up all the power and position in the world for the sake of the mission of Jesus, which was to give up all his power and position to lift others up so that they could experience God as Lord and Savior. I mean, that previous section was honestly like a bomb that he drops for what the expectation of life with Jesus looks like, that people were just simply not living into. And I think honestly that people are not living into today. But he then says, but look, we aren't there. I'm not even there. Paul, who had done one of the most dramatic directional life changes in scripture, says, I am not there yet. Remember last week we said that faith is not a destination that we simply arrive at. It is a journey that we go on to look more like Jesus. Paul, a man who had completely turned his life towards Jesus, planting churches, baptizing people, being the apostle to the Gentiles. While he was in, Rome, in prison in Rome near the end of his life, he says, I have not arrived yet. He says, I long to live into those things that I just said even more. And there are still parts of me that I need Jesus to change. See, honestly, there is no one that I know today that I can think of who is as spiritually connected and committed to the kingdom of God as Paul was. And even he, near the end of his life, says there is still more in me that can be changed to look more like Jesus. And I just have to pause there and ask, is it any more clear that life with Jesus is a journey? That we never stop becoming more like Jesus. And the moment that we decide I have arrived, I am like Jesus, is the moment that we need a deep repentance and we need Jesus even more than ever. Paul hadn't arrived, but he says, but there is one thing, one thing that I know for sure. Whatever happened in my past, it doesn't matter. The life that I lived before Jesus and persecuting Christians, the churches that I planted after Jesus changed me, none of that means that I have arrived or achieved full Christ-likeness. No, instead I keep pressing forward. I keep moving forward to achieve the work God has called me to in Christ Jesus. And you can ask, what is that work? Well, first, it's to be transformed ourselves by Jesus. And then it's to create opportunities for others to experience Jesus. And this is exactly what he's doing in prison. (laughs) He's in prison. He, he's, he's in under house arrest in Rome, and he's nearing the end of his life, and he's talking to the guards, and they're following Jesus. He's talking to the household of Caesar, and they're becoming followers of Jesus. I mean, this is our call in Christ Jesus. And so finally, we arrive at chapter 4, and Paul goes back to his more friendship-based letter-writing posture. So he started on the basis of friendship and he moved to, toward that exhortation and helping them stand firm. And then he ends the letter again on the basis of friendship and mutual benefit. He says, thank you for sending me those financial gifts. They're awesome, they're incredible. You didn't have to do that, but you did it anyway and I'm incredibly grateful and blessed because of your generosity. But before he thanks them, he throws in this point about rejoicing in everything. And this is really important. Remember, Paul is in prison at this point in time. And still he is seeking Jesus. He is growing and developing in his Christ-likeness. And so this statement in in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when he says those things, he genuinely understands what it means to rejoice in all circumstances always, right? I mean, Paul's life has been crazy. He's been shipwrecked several times, imprisoned many times, beaten, and so much more. And yet at the end of his life, he tells people to rejoice in all of it. To not be anxious about anything, but to present everything to God with thanksgiving. And see, I find this striking. A journey of faith is one that is able to take every moment in stride, to see every moment for what it is and either learn from it or not. When we get stuck in the lie that faith is a destination we are meant to achieve and then maintain forever, then each each moment is either an affirmation of that faith or it's a hindrance to that faith. And so, in other words, each moment will either confirm where we are or try or try to get us to see that we are not where we are supposed to be. But as we've been saying for weeks, faith is not a destination; it's a journey. And on a journey, you will find a a fallen tree that you're going to have to climb over. You're going to find a stream that you have to cross. You're going to have to, you know, go past a mountain. You may have to bandage a sprained ankle or put ointment on a bite or sting. But most people on a journey expect for there to be bumps and bruises along the way. And they take those moments in stride, paying attention to the purpose of the moment. So, for example, stay away from huge beehives because you're going to get stung. Or don't try to carry your son on your shoulders and then cross a slippery, moss-infested log over a stream because you will fall in. Or definitely stay close to water so that you always know what direction you're going and you can have water and so on. It's the same thing when we view life as a journey and certainly when we view faith as a journey. See, there will be moments when we have doubts about God's presence or where we experience painful loss and hardship, or maybe it's that we will go through a global pandemic that will cause us to wrestle with countless countless things about faith. But when we see faith as a journey, we expect those moments to come. We expect for them to come. We know they're coming. And when they do, we aren't surprised by them, but rather we navigate through them and around them or over them. But see, when life and faith are a destination that we're just supposed to arrive at and never leave, then every moment of pain, every moment of discomfort or frustration and confusion and more will cause the foundations of that faith to shift underneath us and sometimes even to completely break away because we haven't been shaped and molded by the challenges and we have nowhere to move but backwards. See, Paul is saying, look, on the journey of faith, you will find yourself in countless situations that you didn't anticipate. Some of them will be good. Probably a lot of them will not be great. But your situation and your context, those things don't have to wreck your faith. In fact, they should be the thing that helps shape your faith. And so he says, in whatever situation you find yourself in, rejoice in the Lord. And I love the way that he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. I think sometimes we in the American church wish that he had said something like, let your strength be evident to all. Let your influence and in your good works be evident to all. Let your politics be be evident to all. Your correctness, your doctrine, your theology, your love of all things. Sasquatch, be evident to all, whatever it is. But he doesn't say any of those things. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. You know, I said this a while back in a teaching when we were looking at this verse, but gentleness gentleness in our culture and age, and weirdly specifically within the American Christian world, is not seen as a very manly trait. Men are strong, they're powerful, they're confident, they're fighters. We are gently only when we shave our faces, or maybe in one or two other times. But otherwise, we are firm and direct. And for some reason, there's a lot of pushback on the idea that gentleness is a masculine or feminine trait, right? Like that word doesn't describe one sex over another. In fact, what it describes is the very nature of Jesus himself, Jesus was one of the most gentle people ever as he approached people with love and kindness, tenderness and care. See, Paul here assumes that because of the presence of Jesus in us, that we are and will be showing the world a gentleness that is different, that is maybe strange. This would have been a pretty direct statement to a city filled with people who were ex-military personnel people who commanded legions and fought for the empire. Paul is saying, yeah, okay. Maybe let's not be the kind of people who have to one-up the toughness of the guy next to us. Instead, make sure that everyone around you sees your gentleness, because then as they see that, they will begin to see Jesus in you. There is a lot more in this little letter that we could dig into. It's one of my favorite places to read and teach in, in scripture. I love Philippians. It's a, it's a letter of friendship, a letter of reminding people not to fall trap to the nationalistic tendencies present around them. Caesar is not Lord and Savior. Rome isn't Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's a letter describing perfectly the work of Jesus that we are called to as his followers. To give up our position and power for the good of others and to lift them up so that they can experience Jesus as well. It's a call to sacrificial kindness and goodness and love. I don't know about you, But the more I read the letters of Paul and the story of Jesus, the more I am drawn to Jesus' way of life. Where it's not about me. It's not about my influence and power. It's not about me maintaining some kind of uh, political position or maintaining some kind of ideal for our nation. It's about being used by Jesus to do whatever I can to create opportunities for all people to experience Jesus in all his fullness as the one who gave up everything so that we could receive everything. Man, what a powerful letter. I just, I just picture Paul writing this to his friends and just thinking, I love these people. And I want them to be reminded of the goodness and love and humility of Jesus. So that's the letter uh, to the Philippian churches. I'd encourage you guys to go back and read it. You can read it in like 15 minutes and it's only four chapters long. Maybe even take the challenge and memorize it. That would be fun. But this is an important and powerful letter and especially for our world today. You know, I, I have that same sense of affection for you, Missio Church. I genuinely love you and care deeply about you. So thank you for being a part of our church. Thank you for listening to this podcast and have a wonderful rest of your day.